This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning and welcome to Green Dragon Temple. First, I just want to acknowledge that there are a couple of major wars going on around this planet and uh, lots of other difficulties and challenges, people harming each other, uh, killing each other needlessly. And uh, may our practice together be our response to the suffering of this world, our own and others. That's really why we're here. It might not seem like much to be uh, sitting zazen and... uh, talking about Dharma together in the face of such challenges, but uh, I trust that, that for now, for right now, this is our, uh, the best response. May it be so. And uh, here at Green Dragon Temple, this coming week, we're going to start a, we call a practice period. We're hopefully already practicing here, but we'll have a period of more, maybe intensified formal practice of Zen, more Zazen, more Dharma discussions, more wholehearted engagement in the way for the benefit of all beings. And uh, there's various events in this practice period. You all are welcome to attend. There's a couple sashin retreats, one day sittings, half day sittings, Sunday talks and so on. Please enjoy this this offering uh, of practice period the next couple of months, finish off this year. So many things could be helpful to talk about the general spirit of practice period, especially for those uh, many in this room are are going to join this practice period. But today I thought to bring up this old Zen story in the spirit of responding to the suffering of the world and how to practice during uh, a so-called practice period. This is case number 16 in the Gateless Barrier collection of Zen stories called uh, The Sound of the Bell and the Seven-Panel Robe. 
and the case, the story is very, very simple. It's not really much actually a story. It's just a saying of the old teacher Yun Men in Tang Dynasty, China, who said to the assembly, the world is so vast and wide. Why do you always put on a seven-panel robe at the sound of the bell? In a Zen temple like this, there's various bells and boards and other signals uh, throughout the day um, that call the assembly to the next event. And the next event is often something in the Zendo where if people have a some kind of robe, when they hear the signal, they um, put on their robe and come to the Zendo for the next event. Or at the end of uh, morning zazen, in the pre-dawn stillness, we start uh, sounding all these different instruments. There's a drum and a, and a little bell and a board and more bells and then another little bell. And uh, at this one final little bell, um, if people have a, uh, one of these traditional robes like this, they'll take the robe out and they'll put it on their head and pay homage to the Buddha's robe and put it on, signaled by this little bell. <clears throat> Priests have a seven panel robe made of these scraps of cloth and uh, and uh, lay people who've received the precepts have these five panel robes called rakasus. And uh, you're all welcome to uh, take refuge in Buddha and, and formally receive the precepts and sew a robe like that. Uh, and today when I heard the bell, I put on, this is a nine panel robe, but it just seemed like the, the appropriate response because the nine panel robe is for giving Dharma talks. Everything's kind of like set up in Zen. There's not much, um, not too much choice, it seems. There's a tradition and a form for everything. And when the bell rings, um, we just follow the form and do the next thing. I don't know about this, but maybe, why didn't he just say put on the robe? Why did he say the seven panel robe? Maybe there's some allusion to the, um, uh, the seven days in the week. Always, day after day throughout the week. Uh, day after day, hour after hour, we just respond to the bell. Who said that?
such a specific thing, the seven panel robe at the sound of the bell. And it's not, I think this is not about um, the kind of temple guidelines of which kind of robe to wear. It's just the appropriate response to the bell. Uh, and uh, it's, it, though it seems very narrow and specific, in fact, everything is included in this vast wide world of um, interdependence. We express our devotion to this interdependence by putting on a particular piece of clothing, like uh, our lineage ancestor, Ru Jing, Dogen Zendi's teacher, commenting on the story said, at the sound of the bell, I put on a dense web. The inconceivable functions, miraculous powers that the seven panel robe, the five panel robe, the, the um, whatever, whatever we're wearing is actually a dense web of interdependent conditions. Very specific, but when we put on the particular robe, we're actually putting on a dense web, inconceivable dense web that functions in this miraculous way, miraculous in a very ordinary way. And uh, again, I think this is not so much about particular um, robe, it's just for, for each of us, it might be like when the alarm goes off in the morning, we sit up and turn off the alarm. Same, same principle. When the phone rings, we just pick it up. When the light turns yellow, we either start to slow down or speed up. And when it turns red, we stop. And when it turns green, we go. And this is the principle of um, the, the inconceivable, miraculous principle of Zen practice during practice period and all the time. Our life is like this, right? It's a series of bells uh, or, you know, calls appointments, time to do the next thing. And we can wonder about whether we should or not, or whether we want to or not, or just respond in this kind of Zen temple context. It's, it's nice because it's all just set up for us. The bell rings. You might be the one ringing the bell, which means you have to maybe set another bell before you ring the bell. So you can get up and ring the bell for everybody else. Yeah. And then um, we don't really have to wonder what to do. That's the, that's the beauty of it, of a practice period, particularly. You almost don't need to decide anything for the next two months. 
those of you in the practice period. It makes it much easier, I think, to, um, to live in this mode of practice period if we don't actually decide anything. Just the bell rings and we respond. Or somebody asks us to do something, we respond. We simplify our lives in this way. And for all of you who aren't living here at Green Gulch, uh, you can, uh, of course, when the phone rings, pick it up. And when the light turns green, you can go, of course. But you can also um, take the opportunity, especially this fall. I think it's a natural time to, to um, kind of reboot one's Zen practice in the fall. I don't know why feels that way. It's more like maybe the summer is a time of activity and um, more outer focused in the fall is kind of the, the earth is kind of herself kind of becoming simpler and less active. So, um, so many of you probably have a daily Zazen practice or a regular Zazen practice. You, you can make a, you could, you could use the two month period to have your own home practice period of um, maybe you sit once a week when you come to Green Gulch, you could, you could try out, um, I'll sit a few times a week or I'll sit every day. Uh, and the best way to, I think, the best way to set up like a home practice, because it's hard in the midst of all the complications of our life, is to just make it regular. Like first thing in the morning, I think it's the best. It doesn't have to be, but it's because nothing else is happening yet. Once things start happening in the day, it's hard to, to come back to the stillness. Not impossible, but you can get up a little bit for those around you before all the talking starts and the activity starts. And um, you can set an alarm, bell can ring, and um, and you might feel like, actually, I would like to sleep a little bit longer. And, um, and nobody here will notice, unlike Green Gulls, where, where they're taking attendance and they will notice. At home, nobody will notice. But, but um, I'm going to try out this practice of the sound of the bell. I'll just sit up and um, get ready for zazen short or long zazen. It, I think it's wonderful to have a home practice like that. You might say it's a little more challenging because it's not like everybody else is getting up, so I should get up. But um, that's the beauty of it. It's a little more challenging. It's, it's a self-reliant kind of practice. I'm just coming out of a, a month-long solitary session. I set up a you know a schedule of eight thousand periods a day, and nobody knew whether I was doing it or not. It's different um, compared to like we're doing this group thing, and I really appreciate that that challenge. Try not to cut the corners when when nobody knows. So um. 
yesterday I mentioned to my wife, Shoho, that I think tomorrow I'll talk about this, this story, putting on the robe at the sound of the bell. And she said, um, well, how is that not like Pavlov's dog? Y'all know Pavlov's dogs? Uh, Pavlov was, I guess, a Russian scientist in the 19th century who, um, who was studying conditioning in sentient beings, and uh, particularly dogs. And uh, notice that when you bring, the, bring really good dog food around the dogs, they start salivating. And then if you ring a bell, along with the food, it, the dog starts unconsciously associating the bell with the, it becomes conditioned to associate the bell with this, um, um, with this savory smell of the food. And then you can take away the food and just ring the bell after a while and the dog will start salivating. It's like unconscious conditioning. So I thought that was a good question, Shoho asked. How is this, this Zen practice of putting on the robe at the sound of the bell? How is that not just like being unconsciously conditioned to like kind of blindly do this thing or just like a bell ring, go to the Zendo, day after day, year after year? I don't know why, I just, I'm deeply conditioned as a Zen practitioner to do that. In a way, it's kind of nice. We condition ourselves to do this wholesome activity called Zazen. But, um, but this Pavlovian thing is a little bit like, um, a little bit unconscious or kind of blind, or just kind of, it could be just going through the motions. I think Zen practice is not really about just going through the motions or being blindly conditioned. It's similar, I think many similarities. That's why I thought it was a good question. So I said to her, um, good question. Uh, what do you say? How is it, how is it, um, how is this, this human men saying, uh, the world is so vast and wide. Why do you always put on the seven panel robe at the sound of the bell? How is that different from, uh, Pavlov's dog's conditioning. And she said, uh, Maha Karuna. This Sanskrit for great compassion. If we have a bodhisattva vow to start with, and we can we can renew it again and again. Uh, why, are, why are we even here in the first place? Maha Karuna. We're, we're doing this very kind of narrow, specific, formal practice of putting on a particular piece of clothing and, and a particular sound um, in the spirit of great compassion. We're, we want to make these 
ordinary simple activities into a into a gift for um, everyone, including ourselves and everyone we're practicing with, and everyone we're practicing with is ultimately the entire universe. Almost like the spirit of this conditioned response, the spirit of just do it, as it which is another um, summary of um, Zen practice. What's Zen practice? Just do it. Especially practice period. What's practice period? How do you practice during practice period? Just do it. But what about this, that, that, that? Just do it means like when the bell rings. I wonder if I go now. I'm a little bit tired. No, no. Just do it. But this is like, um, there could be lots of just do it. Um, that might not be so helpful. When somebody says, just pick up your gun and take it to the front line. There's all kinds of questionable um, activities to just do. But if, and even like salivate at the sound of the bell, at the sound of the bell, is somewhat questionable too. But if we if we arouse the spirit of of uh, great compassion, the, the wish that our practice be a benefit to uh, to everyone, um, that kind of sets the stage. It sets the tone. It it um, it um, infuses all this these kind of conditioned responses um, with this spirit or intention. This makes Zen practice a little different from conditioning of Pavlov's dogs. The world is so vast and wide means like there's infinite possibilities here. It's kind of, we are totally free as human beings. We might not feel that way, but in, in a sense, we're all completely free um, to live this life however we feel inspired to. Within the conditions we're given, we're totally free. So why would we put ourselves in some situation where when the alarm rings, we just get up whether we feel like it or not. That doesn't seem like freedom. It seems like the opposite of the freedom of the vast and wide world. And yet that's how we're expressing our, our freedom with great compassion and the spirit of um, just do it is actually quite a bit more free than actual practicality than um, since I'm so free when that alarm goes off to not get up or to get up, what should I do? We're already kind of, we're already losing our freedom. So um, the collector of these Zen stories in the, uh, the Mumon Khan, teacher Mumen, Wu Men, uh, 
wrote a comment on this story. He said, um, in practicing Zen and studying the way, we don't follow after sounds. Or we don't, we're not swayed by sounds and we don't follow after sights. So um, this is sort of bringing up another side of the story, right? I'd say in Zen, if we don't kind of follow after sounds and sights, we're not swayed by them, then we shouldn't just put on the robe at the sound of the bell. But here, there's another side of the story. We get caught up in sights and sounds. We might even say that, um, I don't know, most, some large percentage of our discontent as humans is getting caught up in, being swayed by sights and sounds. You might say, that's a weird thing to say. It doesn't seem like such a problem. Well, the sounds of people saying like, I don't like the way you're doing that. Can you do it differently? We get swayed by those, those kinds of sounds or those sights like, I don't know. In a Zen temple, it's like big like dust bunnies on the floor or something. Or the, um, we can get swayed by even like, like really refined kind of sights, like when we're offering incense at the altar and the, uh, the incense box is like off to the side a little bit. Why did the, why did the doan not like align that incense box? You can get, <laughs> the Zen practitioners can get swayed by things like that. There's nothing really wrong with it being misaligned. We can just uh, realign it, but, um, there might be some discontent arising from the box being misaligned, not to mention all kinds of other disturbing sights and sounds. So Wu Man, this um, commentator on the story about this bell is saying, um, in practicing Zen and studying the way, we intend to not be a victim sounds. It's another way it's translated. And not to... Um, follow after, get caught up in sights. And regarding sights and sounds, uh, you may actually have some realization when seeing a sight, or you might illuminate the mind when hearing a sound. But that's just a, like an ordinary matter. And I think here he's referring to these Zen stories like uh, one time a, a Zen practitioner in old China was um, sweeping the garden and uh, a pebble from the broom hit a piece of bamboo and it went. And uh, because he wasn't... Um, uh, caught up in that sound, the sound just struck him to the marrow and he was awakened hearing the sound. He disappeared into the sound 
and another Zen ancestor um, was walking in the mountains and saw a peach blossom just opened. And on seeing this color, they awakened to the way. So um, there are these sounds of, of awakening when hearing sound, these stories of hearing of awakening when hearing sounds and seeing sights. And uh, so Wu Men says, if we're not victims of sound and caught up in sights, we can have this kind of awakening to sights and sounds. But then he says, but that's just an ordinary thing. That's, that's like, so what? <laughs> True Zen practitioners not only have these momentary awakenings with particular pebbles and peach blossoms, but they, um, they can ride on the sounds and they um, hover over sights or become one with sights with everything clear moment by moment, handling each situation skillfully. So I think this would be like relating to sights and sounds uh, in, a, um, in a way where we're not separating from them and we're not, we're not generating a, a self in relation to them in a big way and ultimately in a little way. Uh, so then woman says, that's how, that's the ideal kind of practice. But tell me, does sound come to the ear or does the ear go to the sound? And even if you transcend sound and silence, what can you say at such a time? If you hear with the ear, it's hard to understand, but if you hear with the eye, this is true intimacy. Quoting our ancestor Dungshan in these last lines. So, um, what? So, I think this is. I think this is one of the highlights of this, of this uh, commentary. Does sound come to the ear, or does the ear go to the sound? Take a look at how sound works. There's a um, this famous sutra in the Buddha's early teachings. Some of you may have heard. That's, uh, but it's worth hearing again. The teaching of the Buddha to Bahia, uh, where he Buddha teaches one of his new students: train yourself thus in the scene. There is just the scene. In the herd, there's just the herd. In the sensed, there's just the sensed, the felt. In the cognized, in the thought, there's just the cognized. When this is the case for you, then there is no you in relation to that. And therefore, there's no you here, there, or anywhere. And just this is the end of discontent. This business of discontent is, uh, seems to be based on me and you in relation to 
uh, the world. We kind of add ourselves as kind of an extra um, subject uh, that stands in relationship to the world. Conventionally, it does seem like there's a there's a body uh, we call a person over here, and there's the world all around it. But then we identify with ourselves as the this subject of experience and the world of uh, sights and sounds, uh, sensations and thoughts as um, external to ourself as opposed to ourself, even in relation to ourself, it's over here. It is called subject-object duality. And uh, even in this early teaching of the Buddha, it kind of looks like saying, this is the, the root of our problems. So the, the purpose I would understand in the sutra, the purpose for, um, training ourselves thus to just to just have the sight, just have the seen and the seen, just the heard and the heard, uh, is really for the purpose of um, forgetting the you, the me that's in relation to it. The subject, it's me that seems to be relating to the objective world. So there is just the objective world. So much so that um, that I forget myself. I I I melt into the world of sights and sounds. When there's in the scene, just the scene. Uh, there's no you in relation to that. And therefore, there's no you anywhere. There's no you over here, over there, or anywhere. And this no you is the end of discontent. There's just the world uh, we call. What is the world? It's sights, it's sounds, it's sensations, bodily sensations, and it's thoughts, basically. I think that's what the world is experientially for each of us. If we have more abstract ideas about the world other than that, they would fit into the fourth category, I think, of thoughts. But we don't have to have a, a me that's the subject of these thoughts. Often we do feel tortured by our thoughts, right? Because they're, how can I stop these thoughts? What about? Thoughts are okay, but how can I stop the eye that's having them? Seems like that's more, more of the issue, actually. It's a subtle matter. Like uh, Dogen Zendi says, to carry yourself forward to carry your subjective self forward and practice and verify the world of myriad sights and sounds is delusion.
practice the world. This is how he says it. We translate it in different ways, but literally to carry your, your subjective self forward and practice things, do things, and verify things like sights and sounds is delusion. But these myriad things of the world, these myriad sights and sounds, these myriad sensations and thoughts coming forward and practicing and verifying your true self is so-called awakening, according to Dogen. I think this is, it's his commentary on the Bahia Sutra. And that this true self that the myriad things are verifying, I would say, is not the, it's not the subjective self. It actually is just the, the totality of the myriad things. It, the all-inclusive self. It includes this body and these thoughts and, and sense of subjectivity, but it also equally includes the colors and sounds of the world carry our limited um, subjective personal self forward and do things and verify things is delusion. But the whole world arising, coming forth and um, doing and uh, verifying this all-inclusive self is just fine. This is the realm where um, the sound of the bell is heard. And uh, rather than like, I'm here in bed, and now that alarm clock over there is ringing. Um, so I'm going to get up and turn it off and see what I'll do next. Uh, it's the same situation, but but more like um, there is no me in addition to the sound of the alarm going off. Which might be challenging to practice this way, but it would make it much easier, I think, to get up at that point. Because then we don't have that. I really don't feel so awake yet. It's not time to get up. It's dark out there. Um, but if, what if it's just the bell and um, in the sound of the alarm bell, there's just the sound of the alarm bell. Then there's just the sound of the alarm bell. There's no me in relation to it. And then there can be this, um, it might be, and there's also sensations, sensations called like, like, um, the body feels like a ton of lead. That could be an early morning sensation. It's so heavy. There's no way to drag it out of this bed. It would, I think it would be humanly impossible. That's just a sensation, a bodily sensation of heaviness coming uh, to be along with the sound of the alarm clock. And... Um, how interesting 
how wonderful that um, that uh, this awareness that's always um, here is manifesting this morning as this heavy body and this sound. Beep, beep, beep. I don't suggest the alarm. It sounds like that, but. You can put on, a, you can set your alarm to play a Dharma song or something. And then it mixes, the sound of the alarm is mixed with the lead feeling body and it's mixed with the thought of, huh, how did I get in this situation? It's dark out. That's the sight. The sight is like, it's pitch black. So we have sight, sound, sensation, and this thought of, huh, how did I get in this situation? And then there's just the sight of dark room. There's just the sound of beep. There's just this sensation of, I thought there was a body here, but it actually feels like a ton of lead. And there's the thought, huh. And there's just the sight, sound, sensation, and thought. There's no me needed in relation to that. And then, um, the world is really vast and wide here. It includes all these sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts. And uh, within that, um, based on Maha Karuna, great compassion, um, somehow a body can sit up and turn off that beeping. Because as, as Dogen Zendi says, the mind that has been directly transmitted is one mind is all things. All things I would understand to be all sights, all sounds, all bodily sensations, and all thoughts. I think that kind of covers all things pretty much and various combinations of those. The mind that has been directly transmitted by the Zen ancestors is, quote, one mind is actually all things. All things are one mind, unquote. Mind is mountains, rivers, and earth, the sun, moon, and stars. Nothing can be added to or taken away from what is said here. Dogen says, the mountains, rivers, and earth mind is just the mountains, rivers, and earth. There's no mind needed in addition to this. The mountains, rivers, and earth mind is actually just the mountains, rivers, and earth. In the, in the seeing the mountains, there's just the scene of the mountains. In the um, hearing of the river, there's just the hearing of the river. There's no you or like some kind of mind over here that's um, knowing those things. Then when we hear the sound of the bell, we can put on the dense web, the inconceivable functions 
miraculous power. So, um, so that's some thoughts about how to respond to the, um, to the challenges of um, this confusing and confused world and, uh, and how to practice during practice period and at any time. And it might seem like, this is too much. He, he's like, I'm, I'm up for like, uh, put on the robe at the sound of the bell, just do it. I got that part. And that's good if you, if you, if you got that part. This, this, this one mind is all things business. Um, maybe that's a little too much. You might have that thought might arise. And if so, I think then it's just hearing these things over and over. I think um, is like, we're like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> hearing these things over and over. we eventually might start to salivate when we hear those things. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit SFZC org and click giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.